Sean Finnegan, and you are listening to Restitutio, a podcast that seeks to recover authentic Christianity and live it out today. Hey everyone, we are now in part three of our foreknowledge and free will series. We've considered open theism, the idea that God's foreknowledge is limited to what he plans to do as well as what he can ascertain from the past and present conditions. In a couple of weeks, we'll examine Calvinism, which holds that God not only foreknows, but also predestines all who will be saved. But for today, our focus is on the Arminian position. Today, in fact, I'm happy to have Dr. Leighton Flowers, the host of the Soteriology 101 podcast that puts forward an Arminian understanding of salvation, as well as responds to prominent Calvinist thinkers. Flowers is also the director of evangelism and apologetics for Texas Baptists. He has authored two books, including The Potter's Promise, which rebuffed the theology found in James White's The Potter's Freedom, as well as more recently, he came out with God's Provision for All, which sets out a positive case for, for provisionalism, an understanding of salvation that teaches everyone is free to choose to believe in the gospel. Flowers earned his Ph.D. from New Orleans Baptist Theological Seminary, where his dissertation focused on the rise of Calvinism in the Southern Baptist Convention. So he is just the right man for the job today. And in this episode, I asked Flowers to share about his background in Calvinism, as well as how he changed his mind about it. We discussed his middle position that both affirms God's exhaustive foreknowledge and our free will. Then we take a look at a couple of texts like Ephesians 1 and Romans 8 to hear his exegesis of them. Here now is episode 305, Foreknowledge and Free Will, part 3, Leighton Flowers Introducing Arminianism. Well, Leighton Flowers, thanks for joining me on Restitutio today. I appreciate it. It is my honor to be here. Thank you for having me. Well, let's... uh, just start out by hearing a little bit about your background in Calvinism, because I understand it, you did come from that kind of perspective when it comes to God's knowledge. Uh, how did you grow up, and how did you come to change your mind on that? Yeah, I grew up in a pretty traditional Southern Baptist type upbringing. My father was a youth pastor growing up, both my parents, very godly people. Um, I had learned just probably what what most folks would learn uh, growing up in a a normal Southern Baptist church is that God loves everybody genuinely, desires for everyone to be saved. Uh, and the only reason that people aren't saved would be because they reject the truth. Um, and that uh, it, it has nothing to do with kind of an eternal decree or that God has decided beforehand who would or would not believe in him. Those things had never crossed my mind. They were never presented to me in any of the churches that I had ever attended, at least that I was aware of. But when I went off to college, this idea of Calvinism was introduced to me for the first time, actually reading a John MacArthur book, uh, and then later uh, R.C. Sproul book, and then later became a, a kind of a Piperite, is what I call it, John Piper fan. Yeah. And so I, I, I really just swallowed the whole doctrine hook, line, and seeker, because I, I, I think I was convinced that these doctrines, just because of their lack of emotional appeal, were just ignored in the, the average seeker-sensitive type Namby Pamby Church, which is kind of the way I had relegated the churches that I'd grown up in into, is just this. You know, they just aren't very theologically deep, and uh, and and don't know what MacArthur obviously knows, and what Sproul obviously knows, and these guys, uh, you know, are taking in the whole counsel of God's word, and they have a high view of sovereignty, a high view of glory, 
And so I just swallowed that and saying, man, they, these guys are the smart guys now. Yeah, the, the other group, the people that I grew up with, my parents included, um, they're good people, but they're a little more seeker sensitive. And I want to be God sensitive. I want to be I want to I want to seek what God wants, not what the, the lost wants. And so there was a part of me that really justified my acceptance into Calvinism along with this deep, robust, exegetical view of Scripture and then I kind of equated the two, and I kind of saw the the Rick Warren, or Bill Hybels, seeker-sensitive model of the church as being well-intending. I didn't think they were bad people. I just thought that they weren't very smart, and they and they really weren't serious about uh, the whole counsel of God's word. It was more of a, a pragmatism for them that whatever works is right, and if we can, uh, you know, have pizza parties and and entertain the folks, we can get them into the door. I kind of was revolting or kind of the pendulum swinging away from that mentality into more of of what I saw as a very deep, robust, theological, systematic that really answered all of the biggest questions and was kind of a nice, tidy system that um, I became very much enamored with and, and convinced of. Uh, I, I entered into what some like to call the cage stage, where I was trying <laughs> to convince as many people as I could of these newfound doctrines that I'd come to understand, and and uh, was a little bit a little bit maybe even angry because they they these things had been hidden from me, um, and why aren't why aren't these be- things being taught? They're obviously uh, in there, you know. The Bible obviously says these things, and so why don't you see them? And um and and so I was probably a little ruder than I should have been to some of my non-Calvinistic buddies at the time, but I won a lot of people over. Um, I'm I'm a pretty convincing person when I try hard. And so uh, I I was pretty good at debating and and using logic and argumentation to help people to see my point of view. And I convinced uh, hundreds of people to Calvinism during the 10 years that I held to those doctrines that I called the doctrines of grace and that I was very much uh, supporting. And I even taught it in my classes in my school and my own work as an adjunct and, and in my in my work as a director of youth evangelism, I, I wanted I wanted more people to understand these doctrines because I really did believe that's what the scripture taught. About 10 years or so after I'd become a Calvinist in college, I was probably in my early 30s-ish. It was I'm kind of reducing this down to a, a shorter amount of time, but over the course of some study, I was reading an A.W. Tozer book, and I assumed that A.W. Tozer was a Calvinist because he was smart. Uh, and, and I kind of had this assumption that if a person was biblical and smart, then they had to be a Calvinist. Plus, you know, John Piper quoted from Tozer almost in all his books. He always refers to Tozer, and he has such a high regard to, to, for Tozer. And Tozer wasn't an ambi-pamby, easy-believism type of guy at all. Mm-hmm. He was calling people to serious uh, discipleship and growth and, and, and seriousness in the gospel. Um, and so I was reading from Tozer, and, and he said something that didn't fit my paradigm— and it really kind of rocked my world because I was like, why isn't Tozer, you know, why isn't Tozer saying the things that fit my my view here? And I began to research and found out that A.W. Tozer actually did not adopt five-point Calvinism. And, and it was actually had some writings and some sermons that spoke out against Calvinism. Uh, and, I, and I learned the same thing about C.S. Lewis, another person that I kind of just assumed was Calvinistic because he was bright, he was um, articulate, he was quoted by Piper and others. Therefore, he must you know, at least hold to the major tenets of the Calvinistic system. And I found out that he actually, in the same way as Tozer, had quotes against Calvinism. And that that at least made me begin to go, okay, wait a second. 
there are smart people who aren't Calvinist. Uh-huh. Why, why wouldn't they be Calvinist? What's keeping them from adopting something that's just obvious here? Um, and I had debated why when I was in high school, a little bit in college, where they really drill into you taking on both the affirmative and the negative of any worldview. So whenever you're debating abortion or something like that, being able to defend um, pro-life in the same way that you would defend pro-choice is hard to do, especially in something such a, a serious, uh, you know, issue as that. Well, soteriology is is very similar in the sense you, you you become very much enamored with and attached to a particular way of thinking, and it's it's very difficult to step out and subjectively evaluate your own worldview. But I, I kind of forced myself to do that and begin to read the best of the scholars from the other perspective, because to be honest. What I knew of non-Calvinism was basically what John Piper told me. Right. Yeah, in other words, my echo chamber of R.C. Sproul and Piper and MacArthur and the diet that I had of, of of others that are the mainstream Calvinists that I was listening to on a regular basis, they were all telling me what Arminianism was, and and they had painted it as this pretty small view of God, you know, kind of peering through the quarters of time and. Um, I remember Matt Chandler having a sermon where he even talked about how God gets into a DeLorean, you know, a time travel machine and, and, right. and, and back to the future. Yeah. And he travels into the future and just sees who's going to believe in him. And those are the ones he elects. And they painted us uh, or all non-Calvinist with such caricatures that made them sound silly and stupid and, and just not very deep or robust thinkers whatsoever. I hadn't vetted the best scholars from the other perspective. And, and, and once I realized that I'd kind of been duped in that way, it made me at least be objective in evaluating the best scholars from the other side. Um, and, 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 and I push back on both Calvinist and non-Calvinist now to say, you've got to consider the best scholars from both sides. Right. And that would include even maybe some of the topic that we're going to talk about today with open theism. I think open theists have been treated probably in much the same way as Arminians have by Calvinists in the sense that they dumb down the intellect of the person who opposes them to such a degree that they're not taken seriously. And that's not only um, unkind, but it's also it's also unwise, because if you want to firm up the future believers in your worldview, the best thing you could do is take on the best scholars from the other side, not the worst ones. Right. It's easy for me to destroy Calvinism if I take that mean, ugly Calvinist on the Internet who's acting the fool and use him as my caricature and say, look at how look at this guy who has a sixth grade education, what he says. Look at the Westboro Baptist, for example. Those, those guys are Calvinist. Oh, are they now? Oh, yeah. Yeah. They're strong. Very hyper Calvinist, obviously. And so, oh, well, let's look at Westboro Baptist and let's let them represent all Calvinists and let's just destroy them and paint them all in that caricature view of Westboro Baptist. Okay, well, then, yeah, you've destroyed the Westboro Baptist group. But what about John Piper, who is a very kind, loving man who would de- detest the Westboro Baptist? Um, right. you, you're not doing a, you're not doing yourself and your own system justice by by finding the, the least common denominator of your opponent and, and painting them in the worst possible light. Um, and, and, I, and I think all of us as scholars, as good Bereans, as people who believe the scripture, who are dealing with those who disagree with us, I think we need to do better at representing those who disagree with us in the best possible light, practicing the principle of charity, trying to understand that their motives are good, 
that they're trying to best represent God as they understand him through the scriptures. And then from that point forward, move forward, having profitable discussions that push each other. Yeah, you can still stand firm on what you believe, but doing so in a charitable way um, as, as, as really helping people to grow and the iron sharpening iron. Yeah. So I think that's really important for growth in these kinds of difficult subjects that we have to talk through. Well, let's get back to your story just uh, briefly here. I realize you could probably go for an hour or more just sharing your, you know, what what particular texts that really got your attention and made you reconsider Calvinism. But what what was it once you did the research? Was it a uh, just a flaw that you saw in a exegesis of a Calvinist passage, or was it encountering some some other texts on the uh, more unlimited atonement side, I guess, uh, of the equation, or what What was it for you specifically? Well, there was a combination of things, but one of the things that really stood out to me in my studies had to do with the doctrine of hardening, um, where Pharaoh was hardened, for example, um, where, where you see in, uh, especially in Romans 9, 10, and 11, where God gives them a spirit of stupor, and it, it almost seems as if God is blinding people intentionally like there's a there's a sense in which uh, even Jesus in Mark chapter 4 also recorded in Matthew 13 where he hides the truth uh, from them in parables uh, lest they see hear understand and turn and and Jesus saying things like God I, I thank you that you've revealed these things to babes and hidden them from the wise and learned um, all of these passages to me screamed Calvinism when I was a Calvinist uh-huh. Because they they seem to indicate God really doesn't want everybody to be saved. He has his chosen ones, and those are the ones he's revealing the truth to, and he's hardening and he's blinding everybody else from the truth. But once I understood, from my perspective now, that when Jesus was down from heaven here on earth, he he was not attempting to be the great evangelist that one over 3,000, like Peter does when he preaches there in Acts chapter 2. But instead, when Jesus was here, he had a remnant um, of Israelites that he had chosen who he was going to disciple, he was going to train to take the, the gospel to the ends of the earth. But he was not revealing his identity, at least fully, until he accomplished redemption through Calvary. And obviously this this strategy makes sense if 3,000 people had come to believe in Jesus and been filled with the Holy Spirit like we see at Pentecost, they would have never crucified a, a rabbi with that many followers that were ardently supporting him. Mm-hmm. He, he only revealed his identity, really revealed his identity and the teachings uh, to those closest to him. And he spoke in parables to those on the outside. As Mark chapter 4 clearly says, he even says in verse 34, he only spoke to them in parables um, in in order to keep them in the dark. And then it even says he pulls the others aside and he explains to them the parables so that they understand the truth. And and I think this is clearly indicating what I think Paul even talks about in 1 Corinthians 2, uh, 6, 7 through 9, I believe it is. um, Where he talks about this mystery that has been hidden for ages and had they had they seen it and understood, they would have never crucified the Lord Mm -hmm. of glory. And thus, in order to accomplish his purpose, he is only revealing himself to those who God has given him to be his apostles. And it's only after he is raised up that he commissions them to go 
and to preach the gospel, which is the means by which he draws all men to himself. And so he's not he's not attempting to draw all men to himself until he accomplishes the their redemption through Calvary. And once he's lifted up, then uh, he sends the gospel to go to all the nations, to to Jerusalem, to Judea, and to the uttermost parts of the world. It's not until the crucifixion and the resurrection is accomplished that he commissions them to go first to the Jew and then to the Gentile, to the world, to the nations. Um, and sometimes we lose sight of that, and we 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 end up systematizing the New Testament by pulling verses out of their context and saying, "Oh, look here! See where he says that he he thanks God that he has revealed these things to the the babes, but have hidden them from the wise and learned." That's theology for Calvinism. That means God has selected some people and damned others. Well, no, Jesus is simply saying. God, I thank you that you've given me to be apostles. You've given me blue-collar workers like Peter, and you haven't given me these self-righteous Pharisees with the robes and the phylacteries on their head and these people who would have uh, you know, seemed to be the best choice because they were obviously influential uh, powerhouses in the, in the synagogues. No, he, he chooses no names. He chooses uh, the weak to shame the wise. He chooses Peter, a, a fisherman, a common fisherman, to be uh, one of his servants that take the, the message to the rest of the world. And so Jesus is thanking God for giving him weak vessels to accomplish his great purpose. He's not saying, God, I thank you that you've, from eternity past, chosen to save some people and damn the rest. That it doesn't have anything to do with the context. And so once I understood, I guess I could say, once I understood the context of what's happening in the New Testament and God's purpose in what might be called hardening, which is really just a word for strengthening one in their resolve. And so if, if somebody's resolved to rebel against the things of God because of, of, of their self-righteousness and because of their calloused hearts, then God, according to Scripture, can give them over to that or cut them off in their rebellion. That's judicial hardening. That's when God is ultimately bringing judgment on somebody for their rebellious choices and actions and virtually saying to them, like, the father said to the prodigal, oh, you, okay, you want your inheritance? You want to be your own God? Well, go. You know, here it is. And he, he allows for that kind of freedom uh, and for people to to feel the full weight and the consequences of their bad choices. And he can cut them off in that rebellion if he so chooses. It's his sovereign right as ruler to do that. And once I understood that, I, I didn't see a need for Calvinism anymore. It wasn't. There's no reason to swallow the difficult pill of double predestination and this whole idea of God ultimately reprobating most of humanity before they were ever born for no apparent reason. It's just there's just no reason to adopt that worldview once you understand the strategy of Christianity through the eyes of Christ. I see. So let's talk about knowledge. Let's talk about what your view is or how your view has developed of God's knowledge. Obviously, when you were a Calvinist, you believe that God exhaustively knows everything past, present, future, and that he had predestined, as you say doubly predestined, not only the saved, the elect, but also the damned, the reprobate. And, and as time has gone on, you've, you've shifted on that. So how would, you, how would you conceive of it now as far as just building a positive case for your beliefs about God's knowledge and our free choice? Yeah, I, I will give the caveat first and foremost that my primary field of study is not philosophy, but, but theology. And so when you get into the issue of things like, for example, compatibilism, open theism, uh, Molinism, the eternal now, or what's called the timeless view of God, sometimes by Boethius, uh, Aquinas, C.S. Lewis, and others, 
um, you're really entering into more of a philosophical realm. Um, one, because I, I don't believe that the Bible gives us real clear and definite answers to to all the questions regarding to the infinite God and how uh, he relates to finite creatures within time and space. I, I think I think that the, some of those things are beyond full comprehension. Now, with that said, I, I don't believe there's anything wrong with philosophers philosophizing and 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 even theologians uh, obviously use philosophy. They're not able to be separated. You're using philosophical ideas when you're when you're doing theology, and I'm I'm not trying to discredit philosophy in that sense. What I'm trying to say is that. When it comes to the inscrutable matters, the Deuteronomy 29, 29 type of things that the secret mm-hmm. things belong to the Lord, but the, the the things that he has revealed belong to us, then we have to acknowledge there are some things that simply are not fully revealed. They're not fully laid bare for us to understand. And we've got to be on at least some level okay with that. Um, and as a theologian, I have come to a point where I am okay with some some mysteries and there is a difference between mystery and contradiction. You know, a, a contradiction is A equals not A. And so saying things like God determines your choice, but you also determine your choice, th- that is right. A equals not A. I, I don't think those are two facts that you can hold uh, in tandem. And, and a lot of times we'll hear uh, certain more Calvinistic type of theologians come to that conclusion where you know, like J.I. Packer will call it an antinomy, and he'll say, well, it's just true that God does determine men's choices, but men are also free to determine their own choice. And we just don't know how that works. And so they appeal to that mystery of this antinomy of God determining things that men are also um, said to determine. That that to me seems to be an A not equals not A kind of statement. And Right. That's just a flat out contradiction. Right, that, that's what it seems to me as well. I don't think, however, uh, affirming omniscience, even in the traditional way of understanding it, is a contradiction with free agency. Now, I understand how some people do come to that conclusion. I just don't agree. The way I explain it is I, I borrowed this from John Lennox, who, who says it this way. He says there's a difference between that and how. For example, we can believe that God created something from nothing. We don't know how he creates something from nothing. It, it is mysterious right. as to how he creates something from nothing. Now, now suppose you get philosophers together and you get one group of philosophers that say, well, I think how he does it is through his voice because the Bible says he speaks and things come into existence. So I think there's this metaphysical nature of God's voice and they go and they write volumes on volumes on the voice of God. Um, and then they pull out a few verses about God's words and his voice. And you got somebody else that comes along and goes, no, 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 it's not his voice. It's his mind. And they and they quote verses about the thoughts of God, the mind of God, and, and metaphysics mm-hmm. of how the mind works within the infinite being, blah, blah, blah. And then there was no, 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 it's not the heart. It's not, I mean, it's not the mind, it's not the voice, it's the heart. And so you got the heart people, you got the mind people, and you got the voice people all trying to describe how it is that God creates something from nothing. Now they all hold something in common. They they believe that God creates something from nothing, but now they're trying to describe how he does it. And, 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 and I'm fine with people doing that. It's just when when do we come to the point of, of acknowledging maybe God doesn't explain exactly how he creates something from nothing and we just need to accept the fact that he does. And so we believe that God exhaustively knows the future, including free choices of people. I, I affirm that. I think historically most Christians have affirmed that. That doesn't prove it's true. It's just I think that the scripture is pretty clear 
though there are some debatable points on this fact, and I and I can and I can definitely entertain some of those things. But I believe that God knows the future free choices of people is pretty well established within the Bible. I don't know exactly how he knows the future free choices of creatures any more so than I know how he creates something from nothing. I see. It is mysterious in that sense. But I do believe it's possible for God to have the knowledge of a future free choice and that choice to continue to be free. I, I think that is possible, and I don't think there's anything that's contradictory about that. Could we look at some of those verses together that uh, present the positive case for God's knowledge of the, of the future? I remember listening to one of your podcasts where you talked about Kila and uh, th- this case where David was asking God, is Saul going to attack? Right. Is that a place that you would like to go or somewhere else, or what do you think? Yeah, well, I use, I use that passage to demonstrate how God can know something in the future, a contingent, for example. He can know a contingency. If um, this happens, then that will happen. What that story, I think, demonstrates, and Michael Heisner, I think, uses it as well, to demonstrate that just because something is known doesn't mean it's determined. Because I think the, the, the mistake that Calvinists have made is they have concluded ultimately, that if God knows all things, then he must be the determiner of all things. And thus they deny any true sense of freedom of choice. Um, now, they, they, they often will use the same vocabulary as the free will theist will use, and they will say that people are free to make their own choices. But anybody who studies this knows that they don't mean freedom in the same way that we mean freedom. Um, they don't mean libertarian freedom. They mean that people are free to do what they want to do, in accordance with the nature and circumstances that God has determined. And so ultimately what they're saying with compatibilistic freedom is that people are doing what ultimately God has determined for them to want to do. And so men can do what they want, but they can't want what they want. In other words, they are determined by factors beyond their control under Calvinism. And so those who reject the gospel or ultimately rejecting the gospel because of a nature they were born with and they could not have willingly done otherwise. Because of their nature, they will always hate the things of God and always reject even his appeals to be reconciled from the fall. I don't find that anywhere established in Scripture. I think it's based upon a a systematic um, that's heavily influenced by a a more deterministic model um, of of thought, and I I don't believe it's it's a biblical model. But Interestingly, and and I don't mean to offend those who agree with open theism, but I I think open theists make a similar mistake. William Lane Craig even calls um, open theists and Calvinists strange bedfellows because they both seem to conclude that if God knows something, then it must be determined. Um, Mm -hmm. In other words, God's knowledge of something is somehow determinative or necessitates that thing. Um, and, and I think that's a modal fallacy. I think it's conflating certainty with necessity. In other words, something can be known for certain in the infinite mind of God, but not be necessitated by God or by his knowing. And I know that is mysterious and beyond full comprehension, but I don't think that there's anything contradictory about God knowing future free choices. I think it's possible for God to know the future free choice of Judas to betray him, for example, or for Peter to deny him three times before the rooster crows. I think God can know that without being the one who determines that Peter or Judas do those things. Is that still mysterious? Is there still 
uh, uncertainty there as as to how God does those things? Of course. But I do believe it's possible within the infinite nature of our divine creator that he knows things that people will freely choose to do without in any way causing, determining, necessitating their choice. Mm-hmm. So you you would not be considered then a Molinist, somebody who thinks that God sort of ran the scenarios in the beginning and then picked the best one. Is that is that true? No, I, I've never proclaimed to be a Molinist myself. I've told Molinist friends of mine, you know, and I've even had conversations with uh, Dr. Craig about this when we went to Israel, that I, I think Molinism is a, is a sufficient answer to the problem of omniscience and freedom. I just don't think it's a necessary answer to be a Bible-believing Christian. I see. And he even agreed. He even agreed with me when I said that. He he de- he definitely said it's not necessary to be a Molinist to be a Christian. He he definitely would agree with that, as would most even open theists. I think would agree. You don't have to be an open theist to be a Christian, and even Calvinist would mostly usually say you don't have to be a Calvinist to be a Christian. Um, and so again, this this gets into the how of how does God work in His infinite uh, ways to relate to finite creatures. There is some mystery there. The truth is, is even open theists will confess, at least some of them, again, just as Calvinism is not a monolithic group, uh, neither is uh, any of the other groups. They're, they all have different strands sure. of, of, of thinking and, and thought and ideas among the scholars. But I've even heard um, open theists talk about how God can at some point uh, know a future free choice of, for example, Peter. That, that I think that's the way most open theists describe how Jesus predicts Peter's denial is that once it gets close enough to that event, eventually it's kind of locked in where God knows what Peter has determined to do in his own mind or what Judas has determined to do in his own mind. And therefore, even in that scenario of open theism, there's still a prior knowledge to a future free action, proving therefore that prior knowledge to a future free action doesn't change the freeness of the action or the culpability of the actor. Um, and so even even on open theism, they're, they're, you're really not getting away from the the major problem here of the, the fact that God knows uh, with a level of certainty. You know, it may be the question of the level of certainty. It may be uh, probabilities within the, the open theist scenario. Nevertheless, there is a, 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 a knowledge prior to the actual action. And that's that still maintains the freedom of the creature, and and I think that the, that's the desire of all of the folks that are trying to work this these things out is trying to still maintain there. Yes, there is culpability within the creature, but there's also knowledge of God, and I, and I think there's probably ditches on both sides of of this issue that we can fall into. So let's let's explore the the tension between those two just a little bit more. Uh, just with a, a dumb example here, let's say I'm going to eat pizza for lunch tomorrow, and if God knows the future exhaustively, He knows that I'm going to eat pizza, where I'm going to eat it, what kind of pizza. He, I mean, right down, I mean, presumably to the atom, uh, the number of atoms in the pizza restaurant that particular moment when I place the order. And if, if that's all known by God, then how can I choose otherwise? You know, do I still have free will with respect to picking what I can eat tomorrow for lunch if God knows what it is I'm going to pick? Like, how, how does that 
how does that function, do you think? Or maybe maybe you would just say this is one of these things where we don't we don't know the how, right? Uh, and we just know that that. I mean, what would you say? Yeah, and, and you're right. I do. I do. I don't know the how, but I, I know that he knows what you freely will choose to do. Now, what the Calvinist says is that he knows it because he decreed it. Um, because right. he, he decrees scripts, if you will, blueprints, whatever, whatever vernacular you want to use, that's how he knows it. So that they're answering the how by determinism, the open theist, I guess, is answering the how by probabilities. Like he, God's really good at guessing based upon all the knowledge he does know about right. possible contingencies. Um, again, that gets into the how I just simply think his, his infinite eternal knowledge, he's just able to know what we will freely do in the future. And I leave it at that. I, I don't need to know how it's a part of faith. Just like, I don't need to know how he created me from nothing. Um, I, I believe he's able to know what people will do in the future. But what's interesting about like the pizza analogy, it's not saying that the person could choose differently than what God knows. It's saying that the person can choose freely as to eat pizza or not. And that's why God knows it. In other words, the choice itself is logically prior to the knowing. In other words, God knows it because that's what we chose, but that's what makes it mysterious. I mean, otherwise it wouldn't be very divine if, if you know, th this is where I get onto Calvinist because ultimately they've kind of taken the divinity out of it because it's not really anything special about foreknowing what you've determined to happen. For example, if I tell, if I, if I predict to you what I have determined to do the rest of the day, none of you are going to be very impressed with me. If, however, I could tell you exactly what every one of your listeners is going to do right after they listen to this broadcast, you would all immediately think, well, this guy is is from God or he's a prophet or something. There, there's something miraculous about that. Why? Well, because I'm telling you something that I am not determining. I'm not controlling it. And that's what makes it so divine, so miraculous. And so I, I just don't think we need to take out the miraculous. I don't think we need to take out the divinity simply because our brains can't wrap around how God does it. I just simply think that we, in faith, confess. I don't know how God, in, God infinitely works, but I believe he knows the future free choices of creatures. And when I say free, I really mean libertarianly free. I mean, he knows that if, if I choose pizza tomorrow, that was my choice and that I am responsible for that choice. And I was free to resist from eating pizza as well. God's knowledge of it doesn't necessitate it. So something can be certainly known without being determined by the one who knows it. And it, it even, um, I think in your discussion with Dr. Tuggy, even you, you all confess that knowledge is not causative. It's not causal. But it did seem in some of the conversation uh, to move to, um, to talking about, even as you were talking about choices that were known, couldn't be other than what were known. Therefore, they were necessitated or they were determined. And and that's where I would push back and say that, that that's exactly what we're talking about when we're talking about a modal fallacy is that it's, it's either necessitated or it's not. Something can be certainly known in the mind of an infant creator, but not necessitated by the knower. And, and, and yes, that is mysterious, but I don't I don't believe there's anything contradictory, at least philosophically, about that. I see. Let's look at some text. Let's get into some Bible here. Um, sure. The position you're you're staking out here, which is obviously a very popular position in Christianity, is a middle position between open theism and Calvinism, where on the one side, Calvinists are going to say, well, God does determine at least who's going to be saved. I mean, different Calvinists maybe would, would say that in different ways. Sure. But... Uh, and then on the open theist side, God's not determining it, and, and there is uh, total openness, and, and the future is 
it hasn't happened yet, so there's no limitation there to deal with. Uh, let's look at some text on either side and just get your response. What do you say? Sure. All right, so uh, first up, Ephesians 1.11 says, In him, uh, just reading from the ESV here, In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. Now, uh, a deterministic reading of this is going to say that uh, all elect, all those who will eventually be saved or have been saved, both uh, are predestined. They're, they are determined to become saved according to the purpose of God in his eternal counsel. How would you respond to this or exegete this verse? Sure. Um, backing up even Ephesians chapter 1 as a whole, uh, you know, I have several broadcasts on Ephesians chapter 1, and, and oftentimes Calvinists will start with verse 4, uh, but really verse 1 tells us who the audience is, and he's speaking to the saints, the faithful in Christ Jesus. So that's who we are, that's who us is referring to. Uh-huh. Um, and so when he, when he talks about we, he's talking about the faithful in Christ were chosen, and God's predestined according to his plan for those who are in Christ. He has predestined for them to be conformed into the image of his Son. He is, he is predestined that those who are in Christ, that all things will work together for their good. This is uh, really a parallel with Romans 8.28. When he says that all things work together for good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Now, th- this is not exhaustive. This is specific to those who love God and are called according to his purpose. And God redeems even the bad that may be happening in uh, Christians' lives. He's able to redeem. He's able to bring good out of even the bad. And so this, uh, even in chapter uh, 1 of Ephesians, verse 11, this is a present active. And so this is God working out good for those who are in Christ, the faithful in Christ Jesus. And so whether Jew or Gentile, which is really what Paul is most likely addressing in most of his context, is the Jew versus the Gentile debate of his day, because that's what he's being pushed against, is, is people trying to say that God really hasn't chosen and, and doesn't really love the barbarian, unclean Gentiles. And Paul pushing back and saying, no, he, he this is a, a plan from the very beginning, that regardless of their nationality, regardless of their gender, regardless of, of the good or bad they've done, morally speaking, that God, uh, through the work of Christ, uh, can justify, sanctify, and glorify. So God has predestined for the adoption of those who are in Christ through faith. But who's responsible to put their faith in Christ? Well, people are. Um, We are responsible as to whether we put our faith in him or in Confucius or Muhammad or in atheism. We we all put our faith in something. um, and, And we're ultimately held responsible, meaning able to respond to the revelation that God's given us. And, and therefore, if we put our faith in someone other than Christ, then we will suffer the consequence for that justly. So if I can just repeat back a little bit here, what I hear you saying is that he predestined us in, in general, but not specifically? Is that what you're saying? Right. The, w- w- this is often referred to as a corporate view of election. And so the analogy might be something like an airplane that is predestined to fly from Dallas to Chicago tomorrow at noon. Well, that's predestination. Now, that doesn't mean that airlines has predetermined who will and won't get on the flight, but it has predestined what will happen to everyone who does get on that flight. And so in the same way, Christ is the elect one. And whoever is in Christ through faith God has predestined what will become of anyone and everyone who is in Christ, whether Jew or Gentile, whether male or female, whether slave or free. God has predestined this is what will take place 
for those who are in Christ Jesus. These are the spiritual blessings is what Ephesians 1 is really about. These are the spiritual blessings God has predestined for those who are in Christ through faith. I really like that analogy. That's really helpful. Yeah, if you if you get on the plane, this is where the plane's going. And Absolutely. Uh, boy, if you've ever flown on a plane, you really you really do lose a lot of sovereignty. <laughs> you, you yeah, to, you're 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 putting your faith in someone else. That's yeah, for sure. <laughs> yeah, and they tell you where you got to sit, and you know when you can put your seatbelt on, when you can take it off. You know, it's just like being a being a Christian. You know, you do you do limit your you know what what you can do, but w- what for? You know, to get to this destination is certainly worth it. Uh, let's go to right. Romans eight. You just mentioned it. Romans eight uh, twenty eight is uh, one of the most classic texts that people love to quote about how God works all things together for good. But verse twenty nine says, "For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, in order that He might be the firstborn among." many brothers, and those whom he predestined, he also called, and those whom he called, he also justified, and those whom he justified, he also glorified. How would you just, in a, in a nutshell here, explain this text? Because it seems to put linkage here in verse 29 between foreknowledge and predestination in a, right. a, a kind of way that we've been talking about all along here. So what's your take on this? Well, I will first, before I kind of get my take on it, acknowledge that from even my worldview, from the non-Calvinistic perspective, I take somewhat of a minority view on this perspective, on this particular verse, because uh, even the, you know, the the Brian Abishano, the the head of the Armenian uh, Society of Evangelical Armenians uh, and and many other Armenian types uh, interpret this passage a little differently than I do. But I, I think personally, the easiest way to understand this is the same way we understand the word prognosco, which is the word for new in, a, in chapter 11, verse two, which most scholars agree that he's referring to Israelites of old there in chapter 11, verse two, when he uses the word prognosco, because that's what the word is, the, those known before or known in the past. And so what I, I really believe Paul is saying here is he's giving comfort to those who are suffering, those who are going through the the pains of childbirth, as he referred to earlier, those who are praying and 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 uh, are, are groaning uh, so much so that they don't even know what to pray, and then he's giving them hope, saying, "Hey, God works all things. We we know this from past experience. We know this from looking at what God's done. He always works out things." together for good to those who love him, those who've been called according to his purpose. Just look at those he formerly knew, those he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn of many brothers. It seems like the tenses here, shifting to past tense in verse 29, he seems to me to be referring back to the people of old who loved God and who were called according to his purpose. People like Elijah, who he refers to in chapter 11, and the other Israelites who he proved to be faithful with. And these are the ones he determined beforehand to be conformed to the image of his son, men like David, who is even referred to as Jesus being the son of David. There's so much foreshadowing of the Old Testament saints in what God did in determining and conforming them to the image of son. So what? That he might be the firstborn of many brothers. It just doesn't, to me, it doesn't make much sense to, like for today, for example, if you or an I were talking to a church, would we say that God foreknew you and predestined you to be conformed to the image of his son so that Jesus might be the firstborn among many brothers? Or would we talk about it as if it's in the past because he's already the firstborn of many brothers? To me, the, the tenses here seem to be indicating that Paul is referring back to the same thing he does in chapter 11, verse 2, those known in the past, those who loved God in the past, 
those who were called according to God in the past, that he formerly knew, that he predestined to be conformed in the very image of the one to come, his son, that he might be the firstborn of many brothers, and those he predestined, like Elijah and, and David and Jacob and all of these others, though he predestined, he called them, he called, he justified them, those he justified, he glorified. And again, that's a past tense verb. And that past tense, mm -hmm. the most used aorist form of that verb is reference to those in the past. Now, there is a rare usage, very rare usage, by the way, of the Greek where you can say that past tense can be used as it's as good as done because it's foreknown or because it's uh, it's, it's, it's it's set in his mind. Mm -hmm. There, That is a possible futuristic view of the word. It's just very rare. And therefore, it's relying upon a very rare usage. And the principles of hermeneutics say if if the simplest interpretation works, then especially if it doesn't create a bunch of esoteric, weird philosophical baggage of God predetermining certain people for no apparent reason before they're ever born. I mean, it, it just seems to me the simplest way to understand this passage is for Paul just to be simply giving comfort to the current believers by saying, hey, look at how God has, has worked and look at what he's done um, with those who loved him in the past and were called according to his purpose. He, this is a perfect example of God working all things together for good. Cause look what he did with Elijah. Look what he did with David. Look what he did with the saints of old. We can rest in an assurance to know if he's for us, who can be against us? He's with us too. He, he stood with David. He's standing with us. That seems to wow. me to be the, the message of Paul here. Uh, so another translation might be in tune with what you're saying here. For those whom he knew in the past, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. So uh, the predestining then is something that happens in that person's lifetime, presumably once they come to believe or you know get on board with what God's doing, and you know depending on what period we're talking. Right. Well, about same here. thing it does in Ephesians that God has destined beforehand what will be for those who are who love Him and are called according to His purpose. In other words, God is destined. That's what all predestination means. We, we we pack in a lot of esoteric, weird baggage to it, but it just means a destination has been determined beforehand. That's all it means. And so, yeah, God God's destined the determination of believers. He is he is he is determined beforehand what will happen to those who trust and follow Him. It, it's not really all that difficult. And, and and to me, when you when you begin to kind of peel off all the layers of the, the philosophical, theological baggage that the Western world, especially beginning with Augustine, kind of have piled onto verses like this. And you really break it down to where a fisherman, you know, like Peter, right. uh, could could read it and go, yeah, I, yeah that makes sense. I mean, because it's not it's not real difficult. It's 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 very attainable. And and I just I think that this verse probably means something much more simple than what so many of our philosophical theologians have, have, have concluded about it over the years. Well, I'm going to have to cut off this episode right here. We've got another one for you lined up for next week where we get into more scriptures, Romans 9, as well as some other texts that are on the open theism side of the spectrum and hear his response to those. If you'd like to find out more about Dr. Flowers, you can reach him on his website, LeightonFlowers.com. That's L-E-I-G-H-T-O-N, flowers, just like the plant.com. Or you can check out his podcast at Soteriology101.com. I've got links to his books in the show notes for this episode, as well as a link to his debate with James White on YouTube some years ago. 
So take a look at all that. Also, I wanted to read out a comment from last week from episode 304, Foreknowledge and Free Will Part 2, Dale Tuggy Defending Open Theism. Andrew Alexander writes, I found this discussion very interesting. It has certainly prompted me to reevaluate my belief in God's timelessness. I assume that based on this discussion, Dr. Tuggy and Sean believe that the past and future do not exist as concrete realities, but that only the present can be said to truly exist. Now, if God is timeless, then the past and future must exist as concrete realities, since in some sense God exists within them. However, if God is in time, as we are, then the past does not need to exist since God is no longer in it, and the future does not exist since God has yet to arrive in it. This seems logical to me if we reject God's timelessness. However, I'm still not 100% sold yet. With regards to prophecy, I agree that many prophecies are dependent on God's actions or seem like they are given to prompt certain types of human action. However, I feel as though you are dismissing too easily those prophecies that depend on free humans to act a certain way to bring about a certain result. Your discussion regarding Peter's denial came off as rather weak. Jesus predicted specific actions that Peter would take and gave a specific number. There is no indication of speculation or uncertainty in Jesus' prediction. It seems very much like a fait accompli. Now, granted, this may not prove that the future event already took place in some sense, but I think it does show that Peter did not have libertarian free will in this instance. Let me just interject here, Andrew. I believe Dr. Tuggy did mention that he doesn't believe God owes us libertarian free will at all times and in all situations, and then if he wanted to make sure somebody did something, he could do that, and he's within his rights to do that. On Tuggy's understanding of this, God would have a mechanism by which to ensure prophecies that he predicts would, in fact, come to pass. He, he's not limited to just working with entirely free agents. Andrew continues, This touches another aspect of your discussion. You both concede that there are clearly instances in the Bible where God is depicted as interfering with people's free will when it suits his purposes. You seem to have no issue with God doing this, and I agree you should not. However, the question becomes, where is the line drawn? Now, obviously, God likely intervenes even when the Bible does not explicitly state he does. So is there a difference if he interviews 1% of the time or 99.9% of the time? If he interviews 99.9% of the time, are we still free by your definition? Also, God has to choose when to intervene and when not to. So even if you get around not attributing evil to him, you still have to explain why he chooses not to intervene sometimes and not others. In the end, God still controls the extent of evil and what evil people can and cannot do. If God truly did not want something to happen, he can prevent it. So if God allows something, then obviously it is at least in some sense necessary for his purposes. For example, Imagine that a father has two children that are fighting. The older child is savagely beating the younger child, and the father does nothing. Someone comes along and asks the father, why does he not intervene to stop the fight? The father responds by saying, I told the older son not to fight, yet he still did it. But I very much care about his free will, so I won't intervene, even if it looks like he will kill my younger son. Any observer would find this argument absurd, so why is it applied to God? 
It seems silly to me to ascribe to God's action or inaction to prevent evil to some desire to preserve free will. There might be a larger purpose to God's allowing evil that we likely do not understand, and perhaps God will even bring about outcomes that we might label as evil from our limited perspective. But to claim that he does not intervene for the sake of human free will seems to fly in the face of his actions in Scripture and logic. Wow, some deep thoughts there, Andrew. I uh, appreciate you, you writing in and uh, pushing back a little bit and giving some thoughts on this. As to your point about, so what's the difference between intervening 1% of the time or 99.9% of the time? From what I can see in Scripture, God's intervention where he actually hardens somebody's heart, which is the biblical terminology for this, is something we see in very rare instances in Scripture. Of course, the most obvious example is Pharaoh himself. But we could also find other examples as well. And in fact, we don't really know how much God does this. I would certainly agree with you that if God is nudging people or um, making it hard for them to choose otherwise, <laughs> if I could put it that way, 99.9% of the time, then yeah, yeah, we, we really wouldn't be free in that case. I, I would agree with you on that. I see these as exceptional situations. Uh, for example, going back to Pharaoh, I take God's hardening of Pharaoh's heart there to be an act of judgment, not that Pharaoh would then be held accountable for the things he does when his heart is hardened, but that the hardening of his heart was part of the judgment for his genocidal actions on the Israelites previously, and that he wanted God wanted to be sure that Pharaoh and Pharaoh's nation suffered a uh, proportional amount of judgment, and that could only happen if Pharaoh's heart was continually hardened to letting the people of Israel go. I don't know if that made any sense, but that's that's how I conceive of that incident. And really, we don't have too many other incidents that are going on, because th- this does get into the issue of culpability. If somebody is forced to do something, then you can't say that they are responsible for their actions. Now, Tuggy did bring up another interesting factor about Peter's denials, which is that uh, God can see w- when somebody has reached a point where it's just it, it's just essentially certain what they're going to do in a particular situation. Uh, now, contrast that with Molinism. Mol- Molinism teaches that God is able to figure out and predict what anyone will freely choose in any situation, given the, the initial conditions. Uh, whereas what we're saying here is that God is able to, in time, there are certain decisions that become essentially fixed for certain situations, and, and they might not remain fixed for that whole person's lifetime. But God sees to the depth of Peter. He knows Peter inside and out. And so maybe he prompted these three different individuals to go up to Peter and ask him, let me ask you this, if he had prompted a fourth to go up to Peter and say, oh, do you know, you know this guy, I know you know Jesus, then wouldn't there have been four denials, right? So, I mean, I don't know how God does it all, but it seems like there is enough room for the mechanism of open theism to be able to explain how this works. On your issue of why doesn't God intervene, I find the answer that you provided to be honestly the best answer, where you say there might be a larger purpose to God's allowing evil that we likely do not understand. That's where I basically camp out. I mean, there are plenty of explanations in Scripture, and I could refer you to podcast. 63 called Why Does God Allow Suffering, where I go through a whole bunch of different biblical cases for 
uh, or biblical reasons given for why people suffer, as well as uh, some thinking on how how this all can work out with a good, loving, and yet powerful God, that he must have some sort of reasons for not yet eliminating all evil, which I do plan, I do believe he is planning to do when the kingdom arrives. I wouldn't punt to free will on the problem of evil question, really. Certainly the two are inextricably linked together because so much of the evil we, f- we find in our world is human evil, human-on-human evil, or human-caused evil on the environment. But as you point out, that doesn't explain why God doesn't intervene in many cases. Um, and he does intervene in others. And there are a thousand million trillion incidents in which we have honestly no idea and God very well may have intervened, and we don't know how else the world would have turned out in this century or last century or whenever if he had not intervened in big or, and or small ways. You know, the, the, the fact of the matter is, this is just above our pay grade in the sense, not that we can't think about it, but that it's hard to comprehend how God would, would really supervise and maintain a world with this many free agents in it. And yet, he does somehow. So I don't know if that answer was at all satisfying to you, Andrew. Uh, I really appreciate your thoughts on this. And uh, the the rest of you who have written in on the previous episode, I would love to hear your thoughts on what Dr. Flowers said today on Arminianism in this middle position, keeping in mind that he hasn't finished really dealing with open theism yet. That's something I'm going to push him on next week. You can drop a comment on this episode by going to restitutio.org. It's like uh, restitution with no N, dot .org, and you can find episode 305, Foreknowledge and Free Will, Part 3, Leighton Flowers, Introducing Arminianism, and have your voice be heard. Thanks, everyone, for tuning in. I'll see you next week, and remember, the truth has nothing to fear.